For this week's episode, we're going to dip back into a previous interview I did with Sean O'Brien. If you haven't listened to the episode we did on perjury, it's probably a good idea to go listen to that episode first before listening to this one. Sean O'Brien is a law professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He's a national expert on matters of exonerations and criminal defense. He's played a big role in some landmark cases. In this episode, I'm going to play a portion of the interview that you didn't hear in the episode on perjury. This episode's topic deals with prosecutors and how they're held accountable, or spoiler alert, for the most part, they're not. If you remember in the case against Josh Kieser, Special Prosecutor Kenny Holshoff, appointed by the Missouri Attorney General, told the jury completely false statements. He told the jury they had a gun, which they did not. He told the jury they had blood on Josh's jacket, which they did not. And these statements were just blatantly false. Let me replay you just a snippet of some of the last words the jury heard Holsoff say. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our only day in court. It is his day in court, and it is ours. The temptation that you may feel is to go back into the jury room and, and just vote quick, and let's go. But I, but I want to tell you something. You aren't just 12 individuals. You represent those people. You represent the small community down the interstate in Benton, Missouri. And those people are looking to you for justice, ladies and gentlemen. You are our only hope. We put him at the scene. We put a gun in his hand. We put the victim with him. We have got blood on his clothes. Ladies and gentlemen, based on all of this evidence, I urge you to find this defendant guilty of murder and armed criminal action. Thank you. Holsoff is from the Sykeston, Charleston area. He had connections with some of Michelle Lawless's extended family. The Lawless family believed him. But the words were damaging to Josh and frankly damaging to justice because they were just not true. To this day, as far as I'm aware, Holsoff states that he believes Josh Kieser is guilty of the crime. I did reach out to the law firm where he now works, but I did not hear back. At this point, any assertion that Josh Kieser is guilty of this murder is absolutely absurd. So let me be clear. No evidence exists that Josh Kieser knew Michelle or that Josh was within hundreds of miles of the crime scene the night of the murder. There was no physical evidence against Josh. In fact, law enforcement admitted to that at the trial. Then we have Chantel Kreider who testified that Josh was not the man she saw at the party on Halloween night. In fact, it was another man named Todd Mayberry. Mark Abbott, now a prime suspect in the murder, actually testified that he was wrong about his identification of Josh Kieser during Kieser's exoneration trial. And the jailhouse snitches who originally said that Josh confessed at a party recanted their statements. And again, that was before the trial took place. So Holsoff was aware of these recanted statements, but again, chose to push forward with the trial anyway. He then pushed the lie that the snitches only recanted because Josh's attorney, David Rosner, threatened them. In falsely convicting Josh, he also falsely accused a young attorney of committing the felony of witness tampering. I know we've been focusing on individual cases here at the Lawless Files. I spent the better part of four or five years examining the Michelle Lawless murder and the unjust conviction of Josh Kieser. And now we're starting to look at other cases in Madison County in Fredericktown, Missouri. But I don't want any of you listening to lose sight that we have systemic issues in our legal system that need to be examined. 
I hope through these case spotlights that you learn more about how our system works and doesn't work, how there are cracks and flaws. It's extremely important that we have good, trustworthy people doing the work of criminal justice, and also that we supply the system with enough resources to do the job correctly. So we're going to be hearing from Sean O'Brien. He's aware of other cases where Holsoff pushed the legal envelope. As a skilled attorney, Holsoff was certainly aware that as a prosecutor, he was immune to civil and criminal actions. But that doesn't mean prosecutors face no consequences for such tactics. In the interview to follow, O'Brien talks about that topic. I'm your host, Bob Miller, and you're listening to The Lawless Files. I went around the car to the driver's side and opened up the door, and uh, that's when we saw Michelle. So Mark Abbott, suspect in this no, sir, not at He said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. And I didn't take but a split second. I said, uh-uh, that's not Mark. I said, that's Matt. Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampire or friend. Why was that not done? So he's like, hey, man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. I... I don't know. At the right price. He said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says, it's about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good Paychecks money. from a bullshit. They never control. investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. Again, this is a continuation of an interview I did with Sean O'Brien about perjury. The first few minutes you may have already heard, but you will see how the conversation kind of leads into the area of prosecutors. So here we go. Um, It came about around the time that Missouri reauthorized the death penalty. Um, And the thought was that committing perjury in a prosecution where an individual Uh, could be executed upon conviction that that is in itself a form of murder. Um, And so they treated it like a murder case for purposes of punishment. You can't get the death penalty for perjury, but, uh, you know, it's the same as uh, second degree murder range of punishment, minimum of 10, maximum of 30 or life. Um, And that was partly to overcome the resistance to restoration of the death penalty. Wow, that's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when Josh was on trial in 92, he was uh, charged with um, first degree. He ended up getting sentenced on second degree murder and armed criminal action. So he didn't actually face, he didn't commit it. He wasn't convicted of a crime that rose to that level, but he was charged of a crime that rose to that level. So that, I mean, that's a sensitive point for him is that his life was on the line. He felt that way, felt it very much. Um, so, I mean, I guess it makes sense that, um, you know, you're going to create a law that if you're lying under oath, um, you are essentially in a murder first, you know, um, first degree murder case, you are almost committing murder. Um, so I guess that would make sense. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, absolutely. So someone committing, uh, perjury in a trial like that and, and the perjury statute doesn't define, doesn't distinguish between first or second degree murder 
or murder where the state is asking for the death penalty. It just says murder. So anybody who committed perjury against uh, against Josh Kieser on a material issue in his case can be prosecuted for the class A felony of perjury. Um, the other consequence of it being a class A felony is that under Missouri law, a prosecution for a class A felony can be commenced at any time. There is no statute of limitations on it. Yeah, that's a good point. That was something else I was going to ask about too. And in my research, that's kind of what I found. Um, so yeah, so there's no statute of limitations for it. So if it could be proven that perjury was committed, those charges still could apply today. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the exoneration process. Um, mm -hmm. If you have someone who has lied under oath in the past and then decides to come forward and say, you know what? Yeah, I didn't actually see that or that wasn't the actual person that I saw. Sorry. You know, like or, or even like I said that, but I I was fearful of retaliation or whatever and comes forward and then helps exonerate that person. Can they then be charged by the state? Um, after that, or, you know, is it kind of like we have to encourage people to come forward and correct their wrongs? Yeah, technically they could be, you know, if they committed perjury. Um, but I've never seen a prosecutor do it because those statements are also often accompanied by an assertion that I was pressured by the police and the prosecutor to do it. Um, and that uh, does mitigate the offense. It's not an excuse, although you know, it'd be a good question whether the duress defense applied. Um, in Lamont McIntyre's exoneration, for example, the witness who identified him um, after telling the prosecutor, no, that's not the guy I saw do the shooting. Um, the prosecutor said, listen, we're going to go after your kids. We're going to take your kids away. We're going to go to family services. Uh, we're going to terminate your parental rights. And to her, that was the most serious threat they could make against her. So she went into court and she identified Lamont. Uh, and then later she came forward and said, um, no, it wasn't him. I lied and I was pressured into lying. So there is a defense called duress. Um, and if a reasonable person would, you know, actually the test is if a person of reasonable firmness would acquiesce in the pressure, then uh, duress exculpates the conduct. It's difficult for the prosecutors to bring that prosecution because, uh, as I said earlier, they're, they're complicit in it. Um, in Lamont's case, it was the prosecutor herself who made the threat after the police had already made that threat. Um, and so that's that's not an unusual set of circumstances. So uh, there are some difficulties uh, with bringing a prosecution for perjury in that setting, but they're going to differ from one case to another. You brought up uh, brought up the topic. So uh, I'll just follow follow that thread. Um, what uh, what checks and balances are in place uh particularly for prosecutors um, and not making false statements or, or just misconduct in general, especially in Missouri. Is there anything in place um, that if a prosecutor lied and, and for example, in a closing statement, could there be any consequences uh, for, for something like that? Unlikely. Um, certainly, 
it would take another prosecutor to bring that prosecution. Um, the um, civil uh, lawsuit is not a deterrent to that because prosecutors are absolutely immune from lawsuit. You cannot uh, sue a, a prosecutor for civil damages um, except in a real narrow exception if the prosecutor steps outside their role as a prosecutor and becomes an investigator or like a police officer. So sometimes direct participation in the investigation, the law might treat them like a police officer, in which case they have qualified immunity. But for what happens in the courtroom, um, prosecutors have absolute immunity against civil suit. Um, there could be a disciplinary action from the uh, bar association, and that could range uh, from uh, no action at all, like we recently saw in Ricky Kidd's case, um, or it could be a reprimand like we saw in Ted White's case. Um, it is rare that you would see a disbarment. Um, there was a, a prosecutor just two weeks ago disbarred in Kansas because she um, uh, essentially suborned perjury and then gave false, uh, you know, made false arguments in the closing argument to the jury. Um, the distinction you have to make is that an argument of a lawyer is not testimony, and so it's not technically perjury in that sense. Um, but it, it can be punished. Um, so I'm aware of three prosecutors who have been disbarred because of perjury. In Ray Crone's case in Arizona, he was exonerated and the prosecutor was subsequently disbarred. Um, in Dana Chandler's case in Kansas, that's the one, uh, Jackie Spradling, I think is that prosecutor's name. Um, she was disbarred a couple of weeks ago for lying to Dana Chandler's jury. Now her retrial is pending now. Um, the subs subsequent prosecutor is gonna try to pick up the case and prosecute it, um, uh, but they'll have a different set of facts this time. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. And then if you remember the Duke lacrosse case, Mm -hmm. um, that prosecutor, his last name was Nifong, but I don't remember his first name. He was disbarred when he withheld DNA, exonerating DNA evidence from uh, the defense prior to trial. So uh, those are the three I'm aware of. I do know of another Texas case where a Texas lawyer was prosecuted for suborning perjury in a death penalty case where the client was subsequently exonerated, ended up convicted of a misdemeanor and uh, serving weekends in jail for a period of time. But I don't think he lost his license over it. Um, oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah it is crazy. Um, but you can, um, uh, and I could be wrong about that. I have to double check. Uh, I'd have to do some research and see, but I could let you know. But the, um, uh, it's, it's, it does happen that prosecutors get reprimanded for doing that, um, which is just a letter in their file that's available to the public if they look for it, you know, yeah. that says this person was reprimanded for, and it would be something like uh, violating uh, canons of ethics, and it'd give you a number, and then you'd have to go look up that number and then kind of guess what it was they did. Mm. You had mentioned a case earlier, I believe, that uh, Kenny Holshoff was also involved in. 
uh, which one? Uh, what was that one? It was the. Uh, yeah, it was Dale Dale Helmig. Yes. Dale Helm. Yeah. Can you uh, can you um, review with us some of the details of that case? I, I mentioned it, I think, in some earlier podcasts, but I um, I'd, I'd like to hear from you on on that case of what happened. Sure. Um, this is the case where the prosecutor made the argument, uh, or actually presented the testimony of a trooper who 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 interrogated Dale about the murder of his mother and then testified to the jury um, that he never did, he never denied it. Um, and sure enough, the first line of his report said, um, Mr. Helmick denied killing his mother and said the sheriff was trying to frame him. Um, so there was that issue with the case. And it was really clear to me, this was the very last case uh, or I'm sorry, the very last question of the very last witness before he rested his case. Mm. And and knowing uh, Holsoff like I do and knowing the trooper like I do, the drama of it was planned. Um, you know, uh, Trooper Westfall, at any time during your questioning of Mr. Helmick, did he ever deny killing his mother? And Trooper Westfall looks at the jury and said, no, sir, he did not. Um, and that's that's the end of their direct case. That's the last thing the jury hears. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I know that it was planned in that case. Um, and I also know it was false in that case. And it's difficult for me to think he didn't know that it was false. Um, uh, so, you know, that uh, that's an example of, of Mr. Holsoff's issues. Uh, the case was also reversed because uh, there were other uh, shenanigans with the evidence uh, that in, were intended to make Dale look guilty. So, for example, there's a deputy who wrote a report uh, that said, you know, Dale was going to get visitation of his kids and he was going to tell his mother this news when he discovered she was missing. Right. Uh, and then when he's at his mother's house. One of the deputies says, look, you're getting your kids. You need to visit with your kids. There's going to be a lot of police around tomorrow. Don't come down tomorrow. Um, and then Holsoff asks uh, the sheriff, at any time when you're trying to find Dale's mother in your search and house, did he show up? No, he was never there. He didn't show up on Saturday as if he didn't care about his mother. But the police told him not to come. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so he's really good at those kinds of things. The other thing that he did uh, in Dale's case, um, there was an altercation at a restaurant in Jefferson City between Dale's father, who I've always believed was the real killer, um, and his mother. Uh, he, she was having dinner, a late, like after midnight dinner with another man in the country kitchen. And Dale's father came in, um, uh, you know, his, his name was Ted. So Ted comes in um, and sits down in the booth um, and says, what's going on here? Um, and she said something like, none of your business. And uh, then he grabbed a cup of, grabbed her cup of hot coffee and threw it in her face and said, I'm gonna end this once and for all. And this is not long before she turns up missing. Um, and uh, Holsoff manipulated that whole process, didn't present the direct testimony. Um, she made a police report about it, um, Mrs. Helmig did. 
Um, and she named her husband and, you know, did all these things. But he presented a waitress's hearsay testimony that that was Dale. When he knew that was not true, that it was oh, Ted. Wow. And so, so, I mean, this is awful stuff we're talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. Um, and, and he does it not by direct perjury, but by artifice. You know, he manages to imply all of these things. Um, and of course, in Dale's situation, he had the misfortune of being represented by a horrible lawyer. So the lawyer literally let him get away with murder. Um, you know, Dale, afterward, I shouldn't laugh about this, but it's this is dead serious. Um, uh, Dale was asked by a reporter, uh, what do you think that Kenny Holsoff should have to do 14 years uh, for what he did to you? And Dale says, no, no, no. I think he should do 14 years in prison believing he's going to die there. That's what he should have to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, oh. Yeah. So, you're, so, so you're, you're very familiar with uh, Kenny Holshoff then. Um, oh, I am. I am. I have to tell you something that you'll appreciate. Okay. Uh, it's, it's funny. Okay. You're talking about consequences. Yeah. Uh, Holshoff got no consequences from the bar association, none from the law. Uh, civilly, he can't be sued. But there's a magazine in St. Louis called the Riverfront Times, and they have a weekly contest where they ask readers to nominate the ass clown of the week. And during Dale's hearing, <laughs> Kenny Holsoff got <laughs> was named Riverfront Times ass clown of the week. Oh boy. <laughs> and he won it by a huge margin. And they oh. had like three or four people. There were guys selling crack out the back door of a candy shop. And there were other kids yeah, there, you know, child molesters in the park. They had all these different things, but he won. <laughs> yeah. Well, Holshoff was the subject of an Associated Press investigation that, that showed that he had, you know, done some things in several cases, um, not just uh, Josh's. So. Um, yeah. I didn't know that that you were uh, so well versed on those things. So that's interesting to hear from you about that. Well, I've had uh, a couple of cases with Mr. Holsoff. So you want to talk about any of the other ones? Oh, you know, the others are not quite as egregious as yeah. this one. I mean, Dale Helming is uh, really, um, I think, is uh, I mean, that's that's kind of typical. Yeah. Um, and he gets the witnesses to do his dirty work. And yeah. so. Um, you know, it's difficult to point at him saying, well, he knew, uh, but he had to know. I mean, yeah. uh, the other thing that he does is he knows that he has the other side outgunned. And when that happens, he just he just takes full advantage of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah this, and, and that that was the case here. Um, there are other cases where his misconduct is just overreaching and closing argument where he says things deliberately calculated to inflame the jury. Yeah. Um, and so he's getting, I represented Faye Copeland um, and uh, he prosecuted her case. Um, and one of the things that he did, um, she used a battered woman defense, but uh, she had a really bad lawyer who didn't present any evidence that she was actually battered, right? And the whole time that Holsoff was fighting the battered woman defense on the grounds that nobody came in here and testified. There's no evidence that she was ever hit by her husband that whole time in his file. He has a statement, a written statement by a neighbor of Faye's who saw Ray beat her to the ground with a two by four. 
right? Oh, so that's the kind of, uh, that's, I mean, that's what we're talking about. Is that careless? Is it deliberate? Um, I don't know. It's one of those things. It's, it's not justice. I mean, how I, how I see it anyway. My- yeah, I think, yeah, I was going to say, I think the best face you can put on it is this guy approaches trials about people's lives like a high school kid would approach a high school debate around. Yeah. You know, let's just throw stuff on the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Um, while I got you on here, I thought um, I talked to you. you you've been inv- involved in a couple of, uh, you know, precedent type things. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Of course, Josh Kieser uh, was was given an, uh, um, an actual innocence ruling on, on on his. And you were involved in one of the original like the original. Can you just kind of explain that was what was that that case? Right. The case uh, was Schloop versus Delo. Uh, my client was Lloyd Schloop. And uh, poor Lloyd had a string of bad lawyers representing him um, for a lot of reasons. Um, the main one being he either had a bad lawyer or a lawyer who wasn't given an opportunity to investigate his case. Um, he got all the way through the legal system to the very end with no investigation done on his case. Um, he had a, it was a prison homicide and there was a videotape that actually showed him in a different part of the prison at the time the homicide went out, but the homicide happened. And you can tell that because the, uh, there's a guard, he's in the dining room, in the prison dining room, and he's been in the prison dining room for a little over a minute. And you see a guard reach for his radio and run like crazy out the door. And that's when he got the radio call that somebody was being stabbed in a housing unit about a quarter mile away. Um, And uh, because nobody had really investigated the case and put together a reliable timeline for Lloyd and or even talked to the prisoners in the housing unit um, altogether, we we found like 30 eyewitnesses to the crime and none of them implicate Lloyd. Um, You know, so there's really strong evidence of innocence. But all of the courts, the lower courts, ruled that Lloyd had already had all of his appeals and they were over. And uh, it essentially, they essentially cleared the way for him to be executed for that crime. Um, And the U.S. Supreme Court stepped in and granted uh, certiorari and then handed down the Schlup v. Delo opinion. And it sets out the actual innocence standard. Um, so uh, the law of federal habeas corpus now is that uh, even against arguments of procedural default or statute of limitations or procedural technicalities, if a habeas corpus petitioner can show new evidence that demonstrates a realistic, uh, uh, a real probability that no reasonable juror would convict this person, then um, they have to hear that prisoner's case. And so on remand, Lloyd was found innocent, was given a new trial. Um, and so, these, yeah, so that's the standard. Yeah. Yeah. Some of, some of these things to a lay person, it, it just, they seem obvious, mm-hmm. but there, there are just legal things that have to happen in order to, you know, to be able to present a case. And uh, so this was a big one, you know, it, it was a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't there also, um, man, I, I, I should have this in front of me. I'm just kind of drawing from 
information I've read, but isn't there something in Missouri where uh, they, they were saying that uh, um, innocence isn't standing? Yeah, let me uh, explain that mess to you. Okay. Um, we, um, a- after we finished the litigation on Lloyd Sloop's case, I was appointed to represent a fellow named Joe Amrine. Um, who was also framed for a prison homicide by the same corrupt prison investigators who framed Lloyd Schloop. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was awful. Um, And so uh, he had lost in federal court, um, and we filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in state court. Um, And the problem with Joe's case was he was represented by lawyers who weren't particularly skilled but they weren't quite as bad as the lawyers who represented Lloyd. So uh, some of his case, some of his evidence had been heard and rejected by previous courts. Um, So we were the first uh, lawyers to put everything together um, and show the court a complete case that completely exonerated Joe. Um, And uh, the Missouri Supreme Court uh, granted us a hearing on uh, Joe's habeas corpus petition, or I should say an oral argument uh, together with briefing, which was something they had not done before. Um, and uh, when we argued the case, the um, attorney general was asked by uh, Judge Laura Denver Stith, um, I want to make sure I understand your position. Are you saying that if Mr. Amrine had DNA evidence that conclusively proved his innocence, are you saying he should still be executed? And the assistant attorney general said, yes, that's our argument. Not only is that our argument, but that's the law is what he says. And and they go back and rephrase that question two or three times. And every time he gives the same answer, um, advocating the execution of innocent people. And the next day, the elected attorney general, who at the time was Jay Nixon, reporters called him up and asked him, is that really the position of the attorney general's office? And he gives the same response. Not only is that our position, that is the law. Um, And of course, they were wrong about that. But um, uh, Joe's uh, problem was that all of the legal arguments about his case, you know, ineffective counsel and other other error that was committed at his trial, those had all been rejected. And so uh, the Missouri Supreme Court had to create an exception to uh, decades of prior habeas corpus law. Um, And the exception is that even if you had a fair trial, you're entitled to habeas corpus relief if you can prove your innocence by clear and convincing evidence. And so uh, Joe, uh, uh, the, the Missouri Supreme Court found that Joe, the evidence of Joe's innocence was clear and convincing, and they granted him a new trial. Um, and then the prosecutor eventually dismissed the charges, um, and uh, and Joe went free. Okay, so 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 that that was Amrine, the Amrine. That case? was Amrine. Yeah. yeah. Now now that decision got screwed up later. Okay. Because Joe, uh, I mean, you know, Joe was on death row. And in the process of ruling that Joe should have a right to be released if he's innocent, the court cited the capital murder statute. Um, And then later, when we were representing Rodney Lincoln, 
um, the uh, attorney general argued that Joe Amrine's case only applies if you're on death row and Rodney was only doing That's a right. life sentence, right? Yeah. And so because Rodney was serving a life sentence and not on death row, uh, the Missouri Court of Appeals ruled that he could not raise his innocence as a ground for habeas corpus relief. Innocence by itself, and they call that a freestanding claim of innocence. A freestanding claim of innocence is not adequate grounds for habeas corpus relief in Missouri. Um, there was a um, New Republic uh, article that came out a couple of days ago about another prisoner named Christopher Dunn, um, who's serving a sentence of life without parole. And he's in exactly the same posture as Joe Amrine. And the Missouri Supreme Court didn't write an opinion, but they ruled against him. After he had a hearing, after the trial court found that he is indeed innocent of the crime, and the Missouri Supreme Court de declined to release him. So um, that's at least inferentially accepting um, the Lincoln position that innocence is not a miscarriage of justice it's just uh it, it's just jarring to hear some of this stuff you know like when, when you when, for somebody like me is in this rare circumstance to see these things happen i mean i i've looked into the josh keezer's case and david robinson out of sykeston mm -hmm. right. you know so i've seen i've seen these things close and personal but to hear just to hear how our system just really puts its resources against innocence it's just jarring like i it's like what it just seems like it goes against uh common sense you know yeah i, I, I know yeah. that we're a law of nation or a nation of law i understand that right but um it seems like sometimes we get really really caught up with the technicalities the, the trees and not seeing mm -hmm. the forest kind of yeah and that's it people you know the notion in america is that people get off on technicalities but i think the opposite happens more often these people are stuck in prison on technicalities yeah. um, i see more prisoners get shafted on technicalities than the other way around yeah all right. So we've kind of gone over uh, all of those things. One, one more thing I thought about um, that, I, that I skipped, I meant to ask about earlier. Um, and I just want to clarify it. I think I understand. But you talked about if if evidence comes out in the universe. Um, uh, so if a statement is is made, that kind of, this is going back to the perjury thing. If a statement is made under oath, but there's evidence that contradicts that that wasn't under oath, can that evidence be used in a, in a perjury case and would jurors be instructed to weigh that, you know, under oath versus not, uh, for, for instance, let's say somebody made a statement to a witness that, um, yeah, I killed that girl where you where that, that same witness is over here pointing at, at Josh Keezer, um, would that evidence from this witness if he's under oath be weighed the same as the witness that was testifying under oath does that make sense uh, yeah I, I think i understand what you're trying to ask um and it's not that you know the, the testimony under oath is more persuasive than or given more weight than the testimony that's not under oath and that's not uh, there's no instruction on that um the the question is was the statement when made a lie um, as opposed to 
um, an unintentional falsehood, right? Uh, those are, that's the distinction journalists and lawyers make. You know, an unintentional falsehood is much different than somebody who deliberately lies. So the evidence that, uh, and this also gets into a very technical rule called the hearsay rule. Mm-hmm. A statement out of, out of court is hearsay. And generally, it's inadmissible to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Um, and so if this individual comes to court and says, Josh Keezer committed this murder, and then he tells someone else, um, that's not true, I committed this murder, um, then uh, that becomes a prior inconsistent statement. And we don't care if it's true that he committed the murder for one limited purpose, you know, for purposes of the hearsay rule. We're just showing his state of mind is that he knew that Josh Keezer did not commit the murder, right? So that evidence would be admissible for a couple of things. It would be admissible to show his state of mind that he was lying when he said that um, uh, Josh Keezer committed the murder. It would also be admissible on his general uh, character um, for credibility. Um, In order to go the step further and say it was admissible on the question of whether he was the killer, we would probably need more evidence than that um, in a case against Josh, not necessarily in a case against him, <laughs> right, you know, right. but um, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that uh, that would support a perjury conviction. Okay. So that's interesting. So if, <laughs> so we have in this case, um, you know, Mark Abbott has said multiple things. Mm-hmm. lots and lots of different stories he right. told one uh person who later testified in josh's uh habeas um trial that um mark abbott told him that he killed or he took care of that bitch i mean that's that's yeah. literally the the quote but he yeah. also told a police officer uh, again, that was that was after Josh was convicted. So that statement came out. And then yeah. in, in uh, 97, when he's sitting in jail, he told a police officer that he saw another man do it, his buddy, Kevin Williams. So he has two statements that I've, at least two, there's actually more. And I've gone over a lot of this in the podcast, but he's he's made multiple statements that he was either involved or saw who committed that murder. But in 1994, when he's sitting in the courtroom, he identifies Josh. So um, I guess what you're saying is if he's, if he's admitting to seeing other things than what he actually said, if he himself saw or did these things, then that would seem to rise to the level of, yeah, he knew what he was saying was not true. Yeah, you, that right? you, you could you could do that. And then the other question, though, I mean, you look at all of the evidence. So the other question is, are there other statements or is there other evidence implicating him or establishing that it's a falsehood? So, for example, um, did he make statements around the time of the murder or during the investigation that indicated that he knew things that he shouldn't have known, you know, if he was not involved in the case? So, for example, uh, if he if he had said something like, oh, I, I saw that uh, girl was shot in her car and nobody had known she was shot. Uh, if he says that before the police know it, that would be pretty good evidence that accusing Josh 
is a lie, right? Um, and other things like that. Uh, did other witnesses see him uh, near the scene? Did other, uh, you know, was he, uh, are there other things that are suspicious about him? Um, you would pile it all together and ask the question, uh, is this person giving truthful testimony or is he deliberately lying at Joss's trial? And then the next question, of course, is um, uh, did the jury, did the jury's verdict rest on those lies? Yeah, that's, I guess that would be the question, right? Right, right, yeah. right. And it, you don't have to prove that he's the only witness right. who supports right. the verdict, but he was, the, um, he was to, the only he was the only person who put uh, Josh Keezer at the crime scene that night. Yeah, then that would clearly be material evidence. When I say material, that has a specific meaning in the law. It means his testimony that likely makes a difference. Yeah. OK. All right. Well, hey, um, Professor O'Brien, thank you so much for joining me here and sharing all of your expertise with us. It's helpful as we digest all the things that happened in this case. And it's uh, very meaningful to me and, and our listeners, I'm sure. So thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. All right. It's good to talk to you. Glad to meet you. Yeah. Have a good one. Thank you. All right. You too, Bob. Bye-bye. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You've been listening to The Lawless Files. If you appreciate the work we're doing here at The Lawless Files, you can support us by going to www.thelawlessfiles.com and signing up for an access pass. This will give you early access to certain episodes and ad-free listening as well. Thank you as always for listening. The Lawless Files is a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC.